That sounds about right, I guess. Four or five. Yeah, four or five times. So uh, good to have you back. But we've got a great show lined up about what millennials don't get, which is quite a lot more than what we can cover in one episode. But we're going to. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're going to go for it. We're going to go for it anyway and uh, see what we can do. Uh, thanks to Willem and uh, thanks to uh, Ted for uh, sending donations during the week. Willem sent a very generous donation, $300 this week. Really appreciate the uh, support from the public. Hit the Super Chats down there. Mash the uh, like and subscribe buttons and, and all of that good stuff and get notifications for the show. Really can't do it without you. Greatly appreciate everyone's support. Um, so, you know, we're we're just gonna go off the deep end here on a lot of this stuff, and this is kind of this is going to somewhat follow what you discussed in the last show that we did about three months ago regarding the behavioral sink and whatnot. I think, and and people should probably go back and listen to some of that. It was a tiny Tim and the future of humanity. And, uh, you had, you had figured out some things. So we are going to build off of that somewhat today, I think, but you, you I, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> no, <laughs> you first. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, I think we're ready to dive in and just, uh, kind of enjoy it. We're, we we're ready to break our vow of silence from before the show. Right. Well, you know, you and I, See, whenever we do a show together, it's it's better if the show is organic. If you and I rehearse it or go over the notes, it sounds rehearsed and and whatnot. Our, so. our discussions are more interesting before we start the show sometimes. Right, so. exactly. That is a problem. So we decided to just sit here and like... Stare. We've been looking at each other for 15 minutes. <laughs> like, uh, we're not going <laughs> to say anything, so we have an organic conversation. So uh, there you go. <laughs> So uh, anyway. well, I promised that I promised to tell an anecdote to start things off that that happened to me in the last few weeks. All right. Uh, I'm kind of a Renaissance kind of guy. And when I don't understand things, I try to research them. And one of the things that I do is I I've been trying to learn over the decades. I've tried to learn how to paint. And I've taken several courses on how to do sunsets. And what I found is. If you start going into it, you start realizing, and you can look this up on, there's plenty of YouTube videos on it, that most art courses teach you the wrong, the wrong color wheel. <laughs> uh, mo- you take a physics course, you take an art course, they'll tell you that the primary colors are yellow, red, and blue. And somehow within that, you're supposed to get every other color that you can possibly imagine. If you want to paint a sunset, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to mimic the spectrum as determined by Isaac Newton. And everything goes from red, you know, the Roy G. Biv thing. Until you pick up your paints and you realize none of that works. You, if, you, if you really look at the color wheel, prim, the very definition of primary colors is that a, like the blue, a very deep blue, isn't supposed to be mixable by any more subtle colors. But if you look at your printer, the primary colors on every printer in the entire United States, if not the world, doesn't use the primary colors as you're taught in physics class. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you, you ask yourself why. 
the primary colors in your printer is yellow, cyan, and magenta. Right. And these colors mimic what's on a TV. That's it's 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 a, it's an entire color theory that they actually use that actually does work. Um, so you what you do is I started researching where did this where did we get derailed on this and why do all the academia why has academia been teaching you the wrong color wheel for the last 100 200 years and it turns out isaac newton is the first person to take a prism and actually supposedly deconstruct the spectrum uh, not long after a philosopher scientist named johannes goethe said it was a fraud he said that you take a spectrum and he's assuming that you have such a thing as white light and it gets broken up by the spectrum and that's what makes your your prism except when Gaither went out, went out and bought a prism none of it worked and i dare say that when i took science class the same thing happened to me and then they'd say well it was really the prism that broke up the light and then you try to you try to replicate it and they say well don't take a prism take a diffraction grating or something like that and what you find out when when Newton went to the Royal Society and said, here's what I did, the Royal Society basically threw him out and said, this doesn't work. Goethe went and looked at it and he said, you know, it's I'm, I'm considering here that it's really not the prism that breaks up the light. It's the little pinhole that Newton make in his shade that let the light in, that it was the, the, the refraction off the edges that actually generated the color. So Goethe did this very long, he spent 40 years researching this. And the only thing I can think of, and you do, do a little bit of research on it, is most of academia followed the mathematical line of pursuit, but they totally dismissed the phenomenology of the thing that Goethe had showed, and nobody's actually figured it out yet. And the reason I bring this up is a little bit of an anecdote, not that I wanna get into colors, but there's tons of things academia every day teaches that isn't scientifically, isn't historically right. Uh, and you can look it up from the flat earth, the, the, the whole idea that the world believed the earth was flat until Christopher Columbus was made up in the 19th century. Yeah. Wasn't it uh, Irving something or other who made that up? Washington Irving. Washington Irving, thank you. Yeah, he made it up in a poem, but it was built on by two guys named Draper and White. One was from Cornell University. And it was purposely, and you can download the book, it, they purposely created a war between religion and science that never had existed. Uh, and I can go into that too, but uh, the, the thing is, is that what puzzles me is how much of we, you can, I mean, you can go out any day of the week and look at the sunset Science doesn't explain what's there. Uh, they, they give you a whole line of really what amounts to is crap. You can look, just look up Gaeta's, go on YouTube, look up Gaeta's theory of light, and you'll see a whole other explanation. Uh, not that Newton's entirely wrong, but he's not explaining the phenomena that's there. Well, you know, a couple of things. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, and I just showed him up on the uh, brain database here, but uh, he was an alchemist, and, uh, you know, he stole a good part of calculus from Calcutta and, and whatnot. But uh, when I've done my investigations into the Royal Society, I have come across, you know, fraud after fraud with that group. I mean, you know, Karl Marx, of all people, was a member of the Royal Society. Uh, Julian and Thomas uh, Huxley were, were uh, members of the Royal Society, and it goes downhill from there. 
But, yeah. uh, you know, so you've got these eugenicists and these people that are, are known to spin information for their own agendas, but the Royal Society is, uh, is thick with that stuff for the last nearly 400 years, 300 and some odd years that they've uh, been around. Right. And I would go into deeper than that even, is that what you're going to find, and to get more to the point where this is Logos media and used to be Gnostic media, <laughs> it really, <laughs> this goes back to what Gnosticism really is. And it, and what you really find is academia is pretty much in general following the Gnostic path, and they're ignoring the Logos path, which is what we've really been talking about. The reason Newton followed the path he was is because the, the actual biggest event in religion and science was a thing called the Council of Florence in 1431, where the Catholic Church decided that it was going to heal all the splits between the East and West and everything. Uh, the Muslims were bearing down on them. But so they had this big, huge council, kind of like a Vatican II type thing we would maybe remember today. But what happened is all these books started flooding into the Western world that, and most of them were Gnostic texts. And they didn't know what to do with them. The, the primary Gnostic text was a thing called the Corpus Hermeticum. Uh, this was, this came in from that, that was, if you do the research, you'll find out it was really the Corpus Hermeticum that inaugurated the scientific revolution. It was the Corpus Hermeticum when it appeared that was considered to be the third lost third testament of the Bible. And it never was really refuted till hundreds of years later. But it's the indoctrination and the re-indoctrination. If, if you want to do a history of the church that the church won't teach you in a normal seminary, Follow the history of the Corpus Hermeticum back to early Gnosticism, and you will find, you'll, you'll start uncovering the frauds of science, you'll start uncovering the frauds of religion going all the way back. When they don't want to <clears throat> adhere to Logos, you know, and you and I had done a, a couple of shows, and Todd and I, and Lloyd and I, and I recommend people go all the way back and watch our whole series that we did on Islam because we follow that through all the way through the Sufis into the Gnostics and show how, uh, you know, they've been manipulating the information and everything throughout history. And, you know, and then once you grasp, when you get your mind really around Logos, you begin to see this this fraud being perpetuated on society, but try to explain it to someone else. It's like, you know. what you end up with is you, you have a, a side that goes back to early Pythagoreanism, yeah, which tries to find a mystical, magical, mathematical solution to everything. When they taught logos, it was really not that mathematics didn't work or they ignored it, but it, that meaning was the primary meaning and reason and logic superseded any kind of mathematical discussion. Mathematics was the servant to Logos, right. not the other way around. Right. Well, And then you, you get into this issue with mathematics, and especially with this quantum physics uh, hyperbole, that the map becomes the territory. Mm -hmm. You know, where, yeah. where people, oh, well, you can't know truth. There's 12 different realities and whatnot because the math says so and rather than you know but you have people building these theories that don't have a foundation first in critical thinking 
the hard part that I had, the hard part I've had in the last month, because I really think the Dead Sea Scrolls was the turning point of all this. Certainly Gnosticism existed before the Dead Sea Scrolls, but something needed to sell the world that the default state of society, the default state of Christianity and default state of religion was what I would call hermeticism, but really hermeticism and Marxism and all that, they're, they're really in the same field. Uh, Marx, Marx uh, socialism, they all are joined at the hip. The, the biggest problem, as we discussed before the show briefly, the biggest problem I have with academia and most of the, the scholars I work with is it's taken for granted today that early Christianity was a Gnostic religion, that it was, and by Gnostic, it's not just that they were into Gnosticism, but that Christ was a socialist, Christ was a progressive. Well, let me let me interrupt you before you go into that, because we have someone in the chat who is repeating this line of thinking right now, Kuyam or Kujam, uh, Rosal Getty, uh, he says, the Logos is Gnostic. That's what's taught today. Yes. Right. You think they killed the man for being conventional for corrupting the youth. Logos, baby. Logos is known by Gnosticism or going within to hear the voice of truth in love for service by the crucible that brings the hope of wisdom. Kind of a word salad to me. But <laughs> right. Well, yeah, there's always that problem, too. And I agree with you on that. But he could, it could be a second or third language as well. Uh, the problem is, I, it, it, again, the main reason I contacted you early on was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And every, if we just look at that as kind of the window onto that period, what you see, and it's true, you do see a sect, for instance, that breaks off from the the main group of Jews goes out in you know in the middle of nowhere, uh, decides that they're going to share all their goods and come in com share their goods in common, and that that's going to be a model for society somehow. And then they they project that onto Christ that somehow Christ had this group of people that he was his wisdom person in the, in their sense. But if you look if you really do the study on the Dead Sea Scrolls, none of this that was pushed in the 40s and 50s has ever actually even thrown up to be true. Number one, if you're gonna go into a desert and you're just gonna take a few people with you, of course you're gonna share your goods and stuff like that, but it's not like you're gonna, most of the people that went to Qumran, in fact, all the people that went to Qumran were, uh, they're highly conservative. They, they had very odd bathroom habits uh they they thought that the the uh the temple was had become perverted and so nowhere were they taking this this ideal society they were creating and projecting it as a utopia for the rest of the world to live the utopian society that they had built was only survivable by a very few it had nothing to do with the state taking over and running the world in this in in what you know what you would normally think of this beneficial way to everybody where everybody shares their goods uh marxism would and then and that's really the cause if you go back there and you say well that's the ideal society anybody who does the research would quickly find out that was no ideal society right and then that 
is spread out into 20,000-some failed hippie communes uh, in the 60s and 70s, and that all were based on this same com- false communist uh, ideology. Yeah, you'd, ha- you'd have to go back to the beginning. Most people don't know this, but the word logos comes from the beginning of the, John's gospel. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but John's gospel is really a paraphrase of the opening of Genesis. And up until that point, most religions were idealistic in that you didn't think in terms of reality being real. You know, the typical person, you know, if you want to call him a scientist of the period, thought that reality was projected from your eyes out. Uh, that world was really some sort of platonic spheres and shapes and stuff like that. But because they mistranslate John's gospel and the whole concept of logos, the, the logos literally means the world was made real. You know, in the beginning was the logos and the logos was made tangible, which was an affirmation that reality actually is tangible and is an exist. It's just not, a, not it's not a mental construct. Well, and, and that's, you know, when you get into trivium studies, that's really the first axiom. Right. Is that reality is real. There are no contradictions in nature. A contradiction is always a lie or an error because God cannot lie. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and Satan is the father of all lies. So once you accept that reality is is real. What you said just now, those two points, reality is at concrete and there's no such thing as a real Something can't both be, something can't contradict itself. Something, you know, the, the principle of non-contradiction has to always be, uh, it rains. The, the, the issue that, though, that happens is, most people don't know this too, but the, the main text in the Corpus Hermeticum was a perversion of John's gospel. And so Gnosticism literally began with them paraphrasing John, the opening the sentence of beginning was the word, and replacing it with a mystical, uh, a mystical kind of Pythagorean uh, mathematical sort of logo, you know, version of logos. And then what happened is that you had researchers that were inspired by Hegel, like F.C. Bauer and things that went back and basically tried to say that the Gospel of John was transported to about the 180 AD and was completely out of place. And they had, con- in fact, in a lot of Bibles you get to this day, they'll tell you that John's Gospel was written 180 AD, and that proves it was a Gnostic Gospel, that proves that Christianity was a, a Gnostic religion, except for the fact that they've now found fragments that put John's Gospel exactly where it says it's supposed to be, around 100 AD. <clears throat> This guy's throwing a fit now in the chat. He thinks, well, you can't define logos. You can't define experience. Of course you can define logos. It might take you 20,000 words to define it, but of course you can define well, it. Well, you'd have to go to Heraclitus. Heraclitus specifically says uh, Herac- Heraclitus is constantly being taken wrong. He's being quoted as a person saying that there's the only thing certain is change, but what he really meant by that is that what which was changeless would have to be God or some some sort of permeating essence that controlled the world? So 
underneath a world of change demanded some sort of permanence. And that permanence he called logos. Uh, and that's really where the term developed from. Somebody's having a bit of uh, cognitive dissonance. I just had to put them on a five-minute timeout, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, it's, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect. The the more incompetent someone is, the more they think they know on a subject. Never mind that you've spent, you know, decades looking into this stuff, but. Well, the, the real, as we were discussing a little bit before the show, the problem again goes to the Council of Florence and that a lot of these platonic Plato, I mean, Plato had been made a heretic and was made by literally St. John Damascene around the year 500, 600. And the platonic academies had been shut down until 1431. So uh, Christianity exists from roughly around 600 to 1431. They didn't know about Plato at all. Uh, all the all the texts had been burned, and so these are some of the texts they had to get from the Muslims. And when they showed up, there was a writing in Augustine's text that said Christianity is closest to Platonism. So when the Corpus Hermeticum showed up, they thought this gave them license to authenticate all the Platonic texts and incorporate them into Christianity. What they missed, and they, all these scholars missed to this day is Augustine also denounced Hermeticism. He, he had a, has a whole chapter in the City of God, and it says specifically that Hermeticism is the devil's confederate. Hermeticism is literally the same as Gnosticism. And so where scholars get it wrong is there really was, we really don't know who Plato was. And so what happens is an old Plato, which is somewhat of an enigma, we best know him through Aristotle. And so scholars nowadays, when they go back to the early church, they don't call it Platonism. They call it Middle Platonism, which is really closer to what we talk about with Logos. What then started arising was Gnosticism on what they usually call it as Neoplatonism. Then there's a whole period of Neoplatonism between around you know, 150 AD till 1430 when the Council of Florence was, that's when Gnosticism went underground and became this, this mystical cult. And then when these documents started showing up from the East during the Council of Florence, that's when all this got reindoctrinated into Christianity. That's where modern science got its connections with, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to think that everybody before the Renaissance was stupid, but you, you go into the Bacons and the different people of the 12th century, they're brilliant. Um, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, most people think that even people two or 300 years ago were idiots, you know, and right. I, I've, I've sat and read hundreds of the letters from the people at Salem Mass in the 1690s, you know, up, you know, even earlier than that, the original settlers and uh most people you know they were so brilliant you know most people wouldn't be able to understand them today and uh they you know most people believe oh well they were just stupid superstitious christians and that's about the uh extent of their and that's true for the seminaries that's true for all academia i mean 
it's not like these these books aren't out there. Uh, you can you can get, for instance, you can get the complete exposition of the Orthodox faith faith by John Damascene. Uh, it's clearly Aristotelian. It's very brilliant. It's it's uh, you can get more or less the Book of Sentences, which was considered the basis of academia uh, for uh, 400, 500 years. Uh, you can get the writings of Aquinas. You can get the writings, several early church fathers that you can go in. These, all you'd have to do is take, take a collection of these bona fide people, you know, brilliant people, and you'd realize that what they're peddling today has nothing to do with what they were talking about then. Absolutely. It, it's a it's a fraud. It's a scam. Yep. That's, you know, and going back to Salem, that's what I found in my own study. I've got about six shelf feet of books on uh, Salem. Right. And, and I went through it, and I found every book to either have an agenda or the author was flat-out incompetent, you know? Right. And I did the same thing with Gnosticism. You went all the way back. Gnosticism is a sort of oddball thing uh, most people don't get. And the, the pure Gnostics the, the, were a group called the Manichaeans. And they everybody has a tendency to look at these people philosophically. And what they really were about is a kind of a perversion of what, what order was, uh, as an example. They would take... Um, Take one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. So what they set them up, they said that they consider this an absolute in a way that you can't kill anything. So you would end up with the, the what they called perfects or prefects in time. And they couldn't eat, they couldn't walk, they couldn't, you know, how do you live? They couldn't have sex, they couldn't do anything. But what happened is that now how do you... Try, not, you try not to create? tap on that on the desk there. It's coming into the mic. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> What, what happens is you end up in, in an impossible situation. How do, you, how do you promote reality? How do you promote society if you can't have any sex? How can you promote if you can't eat? How can you? And, this, and so the Manichaeans had basically developed a culture where you, you didn't have to do anything at all. So, well, how do you do that? Well, you enlist slaves. And you make the slaves do their killing. You make your slaves uh, do your, all the dirty work, all the things you don't want to touch. Uh, and this becomes a kind of a when, when you really dig down to these what are ultimately progressives, you'll find a nasty side to almost all of them from the Nazi. And most people will think the Nazis were, were a conservative sect that went wild. But if you really dig into it, you find out they started out as a, a, a liberal sect. Well, it's, it's out- actually right in their name, if you think about it, National Socialist German workers party i mean what part of that says right wing the whole thing is is left wing and uh you know i i i've even posted on my facebook page stop calling leftist hate groups like the nazis uh right wing it's complete nonsense well and then what gets completely disavowed is the whole idea of marx and stalin and all that kind of stuff we, I mean, no, clearly we're not advocating any kind of uh, 
I'm, I'm not trying to underplay the 6 million Jews that were killed, but 18 million Christians were killed in, in Soviet Russia. Right. Uh, and you find numbers of that even in or, or, or about China. How about like this chunk yogurt guy who runs this news channel online, uh, Young Turks, uh, to glorify the the Turkish genocide of Christian Armenians, you know? And you know, this stuff is always played down. You had a you had a little thing you read uh before the show. Yeah. You want me to read uh, it? Yeah, I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to I'm going to stall here while you're reading it. I'm trying to find some quotes here that I, if you give while you read that, I'm going to look for them. All right. So you just want me to buy you some time? Buy some time, but I think it's relevant. It'll be relevant. All right. So this is something I wrote yesterday. There's two parts to this, and I just kind of stuck them together because they actually really flow. It was one thought, and then it grew into another one. Leftist victimhood mentality is flabbergasting to, com to contemplate. They're not responsible for anything they do. Steal a car? The car owner was a racist. Shoplift? The store owners were white racists for reporting the crime. Kill someone? It's justified because the victim was a, buzzword, racist. The left is never responsible for their own behavior, period. It's always blame casting onto someone else to avoid responsibility at any and all cost. There's no self-reflection in the mind of the leftist. Any and all problems in a leftist life are the responsibility of white people and Trump only. Do crack cocaine for 15 years, never worked, can't keep a job in and out of jail and homeless because of it? It's the white man keeping you down. You're not responsible for the crack pipe in your hand. Someone else put it there and forced you to take a hit. The leftist, ment the leftist has the mentality of a three-year-old who hasn't learned to be responsible for their own behavior yet. It's arrested development. It's the final stages of the nanny state. The greatest issue of our time is how do we teach the feeble minds of leftists responsibility for their own actions? Parents who have basement dwellers beyond 21, time to kick them out today and teach them responsibility. Teach them work ethics, how to build things, and how to be self-sufficient or self-reliant. No more nanny state. No more man-child living in the basement. No more children suckling into their 40s. It's time to pe teach people how to grow up. Another issue with most leftists is that they... Soak up hyperbole from the leftist socialist university professors being told what to think rather than how to think. Think of the trivium that I've been teaching and putting out there for a decade now. The young, impressionable leftist leaves college with nearly no life experience, but believing that they're smarter and have more experience and wisdom than those with actual life experience and wisdom. The young leftist has never raised children and family purchased a home, run a business, done hard work, raised their own food. Leaving college on mommy and daddy's dime, the leftist believes that they're the responsibility of someone else. Someone else paid for them through college. That college tuition should be free. And after all, when they left for college, mommy and daddy paid for everything and wiped their asses as babies. So why shouldn't their whole lives be a free ride? 
incapable of thinking critically and being spoon-fed socialist propaganda throughout college, the leftists can't understand the ramifications of their false beliefs. Needing safe spaces rather than allowing free speech, needing big government to hold their hand through life like mommy and daddy did in their childhood, the leftist continues down this path of victimhood because, to them, with no life responsibilities, everything should be free for them and everyone else is responsible for their well-being but them. Not having any children themselves, or likely I should say, the leftist is a child well into adulthood. It's extended adolescence because being a parent teaches you responsibility for another life. If you're 40 and still don't have children, you're likely still caught in that child mentality. Okay, now I'd, I'd like to build on that because what you're going to find, even in the article that I, I wrote, and I tried to make it a key point in my Dead Sea Scroll thing, is that for some reason since the 1940s, we've got this pristine idea of what Marxism is, that Marxism somehow leads to this pristine utopian state where everybody's treated equal, that uh, the vision of labor is equitable to everybody, the vision of all the goods, everybody gets what they want and nobody suffers. So I, in my research, I tried to find out who Karl Marx really was. And one of the books that I found fairly recently was a book written by a guy named Wumbrand. And he was a Lutheran pastor underneath the Soviet regime. And the name of the books is called Marx and Satan. And I think he gives you an insight into Karl Marx that academia won't give you. And it gave, it gave me an insight that I had never really thought that much before. So here's a bit from this book. Marx even championed slavery in North America. For this, he quarreled with his friend Proudhon, who had advocated the emancipation of slaves in the U.S. Marx wrote in response, quote, Without slavery, North America, the most progressive of countries, would be transformed in a patriarchal country. Wipe North America from the map of the world and you will have anarchy, anarchy, the complete decay of modern commerce and civilization. Abolish slavery and you will have wiped America off the map of nations. That's Karl Marx. And there's... Oh, the, the irony in these nitwit socialists and communists going around uh, beating the socialist communist drum and not realizing that Marxist was pro-slavery. Right, and Marx literally does use the N-word quite several times in his writings. Um, and, and the BLM are openly Marxist. Right, right. Talk, so where's talk the about, irony? Yeah, talk about brain dead there. But the thing is, what the, thing, the important thing I'd like to bring up here, though, is that as, as a, a theologian, the idea of equating Marxism with Satanism I had never really thought about it. I never knew that there was evidence that, that would purport that. When, when did you come up or come to this conclusion? Uh, just in the last few weeks. Because I've been at this conclusion, this same conclusion that Marxism was Satanism for maybe two or three years. Yeah, I, I mean, I had thought of it, but I, you know, I, I kind of hold judgment back until I can actually find something right. in their writing. 
the thing is, I, I, I want to take you down a little trip here. When Adam Smith developed capitalism, we tend to think that this is a financial system, that capitalism has to do with making money and spending money and all, all has to do with money. And that's not really what he intended. In, in the, a purely capitalist system, the idea is that you can equate anything that you do with value. Your ideas have value, your thoughts have value, your, your possessions have value, uh, your reputation has value. All the things that you possess to some degree or another has value and, has, and is tradable in a sense on the open market. So now you think of what I think a Marxist considers a capitalist society is you think of a society where I scratch your back, you scratch my back, and it's kind of beneficial to us both. And if we have an equitable relationship, both of our lives are made better. In our, I, as you know, I live in Wisconsin. Wisconsin's becoming a little bit of a fire place, you know, fire bed lately with protests and things. And I drove by, past one of these protests. Oops. It's, it's unmistakable. You go to some, a lot of these people are society's misfits. Now, if you've known, I'm sure you've noticed that yourself. Oh yeah, of um, course, and and almost entirely young people under the age of 24, 25. Okay, so now now they criticize capitalism. What are they really criticizing? And I think understanding Satanism gives you a window whether they would call themselves Satanists or not. The essence of Satanism is taking everything and turn it upside down. So you and I look at being reputable, being honest, as being net the rules of society, that if you follow the rules of society, it's going to add to your wealth somehow, whether it's going to make you rich or not, might maybe not. But the idea is that at least my life will be better by being honest, being friendly, being sincere, uh, doing a day's work and all that kind of stuff is going to make my life better than what it had been had I not done these things. But you look at the... I, this world through the idea of a misfit and if you know maybe it's not tactful to say that but somebody who doesn't quite fit in society is going to look at all those rules as being a conspiracy against their livelihood so what is their pristine society their pristine society if if i look at all these rules of society as being something beneficial they're going to see that as a cons rules themselves as being a conspiracy against them. Right. And so, and, and when, you, when you get it, it's all, all of the rules and laws, Old, New Testament, all of it is, is, are the rules for building a highly functioning society so that we can all get along in there. And right. The, but and if you're a misfit. Right. And the Satanist takes that and inverts it and it sells the exact opposite, which coincides with communism and the left and the Fabian socialists and Aldous Huxley and all the hyperbole sold out of uh, the Esalen Institute up in Northern California, they do the exact opposite. And we can see the total decay and collapse of society. Exactly right. And so what they do is they, they, uh, one of the books I have that was very, very hard to find uh, was called the dialectic of enlightenment. And I wouldn't, it's, there's several books written by, two guys named Hork, one guy Horkheimer, another one is Adorno. And they Theodore were the Adorno. 
Yeah, they were the founders of the critical theory movement. And a lot of these books, if you actually look back, you'll find that if you find the, the modern day versions of them, so censored. You, you'd, you'd laugh to know that uh, Theodore Adorno was a member of the, worked for the Tavistock Institute, Frankfurt School. He was right. also a part of the Princeton Radio Research Project and a founding member of the Fabian Society. But the Princeton Radio Research Project is who did the uh, War of the Worlds broadcast to test, uh, you know, large broad national broadcasts as systems of mind control to create mass hysteria. You know, well, what do we just have this year? Mass hysteria. People walking around wearing face diapers and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, it's this all starts with Adorno and that group of people. Right. And I don't know if you've ever seen the book Dialectic of Enlightenment, but it's unreadable. And what it is, a manual for deconstructing society through criticism. And so what they're trying to do, every page of the book is taking something anti-Logos. In fact, at some point, they even admit it, that what they're trying to do is de deconstruct the whole idea of what reason is. Going back to what I would say is the very essence of non-contradiction. That Well, that's logic. Logic is the art of non-contradiction. And where do we get the word logic from? Logos. Right. right. But the, the, the essence, I don't know if you've taken a course in logic, but one of the first days in my course on logic, the professor specifically said, if you want to deconstruct logic, introduce a tautology. And what he used as an example was the idea of, envision this phrase written out, this sentence is false. So you take a sentence is just that sentence becomes its own world onto itself. It doesn't appeal to any outside logic. The only appeal of truth it has is to itself, except it inverts that logic in the formulation of the sentence. So now is the sentence true or is it false? If you think it's true, it's false. If you think it's false, it's true. That type of non, of, well, it's, you can't really call it a paradox. It's a paradox. It's a tautological paradox of some sort. But what it does is it becomes a mental game where if you incorporate that kind of paradox as a truth, it literally collapses your entire reasoning system. You, if you, the, the professor specifically said that if you want to collapse a society, get them to accept the tautology is true. <laughs> well, there is Marxism. Right. That, yeah, that makes perfect sense, really. Yeah. So, you know, so let's go back for a minute. Let's talk about Jesus, because in the leftist mind, and I've had this same conversation within the last couple of months with a cousin of mine, Jesus was the biggest progressive ever. And, you know, in... So you want me to deconstruct well, that? Well, hold on a second. Yeah, and but I want to preface that. You know, and it's hard to get someone to understand that giving to homeless people or to charities or through Christian goodwill, etc., is very different than the leftist, communist, socialist ideal of having an uber-large government going around using violence to steal to redistribute that wealth. And so that 
everybody, whether or not they participate, gets an equal share. Now, I used to live in a communist country back in the 90s. I lived in uh, Serbia and, and Yugoslavia back in the 90s. I didn't say California, but... Well, no, that well, that's now, so... <laughs> So yeah, there's that issue, but you know, back in the '90s, you could really see this stuff. And I lived, I lived there with my ex-wife and her family. They were Serb, and we would travel back and forth and live there every summer, and then come back here and work and save up to go back there during the next summer. But you know, people were miserable there. Most of the stores didn't have much in them. You know, you go to the grocery store, you might be able to get a loaf of bread one day a week. You might be able to get some sour cream one day a week. You might be able to get a little fish one day a week. And they were never on the same day, you know. And this is, you know, this is what people want. And, and you're, you know, you couldn't go and build your own home, generally speaking. Maybe out in the country you could. But in the cities, everything was basically condo apartment buildings where everyone had the exact same living. And they were all cookie cutter, cookie cutter, cookie cutter. You know, and this is the the so-called utopia that the left wants. Now, what also happened was without competition, with everybody just, you know, getting an equal level in things, there was no will to or want to do better, to do good work. So the quality of labor dropped and people did crappy, crappy work you know, or, you know, if they worked at all and they didn't care if they did a good job or a bad job because they got paid either way. All right. All right. If, if you really want to read the Bible and get, <clears throat> this is the story you're not going to get in seminaries, but you can check it out. You can look it up. What happened was around four or 500 BC, the, the Jews were captured by the Babylonians and they removed the Babylonian under what was called the Babylonian exile. So eventually you have a bunch of episodes that happen, but what eventually happens is, is a, a guy named Esdras takes, is released, and he takes the contingencies of Jews back to Israel to recreate traditional Judaism. It, some people get this wrong, but what happens is that a large contingency of Jews are left in Babylonia, which would be Iran today, you know, kind of largely Iran. So these Jews go back, they reconstruct the temple and returned it. They, they reconstruct the scriptures, they reconstruct the, the traditions of the Jews and everything. What happens right before the turn of the millennium is a, a guy named Herod gets as a proxy king gets put in charge of the Jews and be proclaimed king of the Jews. He had none of the Herod heredity. He really wasn't even authentic Jew. And every Jew in Judaism knew that he wasn't an authentic Jew, that he had been placed there. In order to be authentic, he, he married into it. He, uh, so that he didn't have any, any claimants to the throne. He killed his sons. But it, as a power play, he gets a fellow Babylonian to come down and, and, re, it was, and their design was to take over the temple. So what comes down, you can look this up too, is in a, some sense, he, I'm, I'm trying to be careful what to say here. The guy he gets to be in charge of the temple is an 
person named Hillel the Elder. And if you look up Hillel the Elder, coincidentally, a lot of the, even though people are doubtful as to how much these stories are true, it's in one of my books. But a lot of his stories are oddly similar to Christ, to Christ that there, somebody is literally paraphrasing the things like the, the golden rule, uh, the idea that he was a carpenter, uh, but you, all these stories post-date Christ. So what happens is what you're going to find is that if you're really going to look who are the progressives of that time period, what you're going to find is you're going to find what's initially called in the Bible the Herodians, who eventually become the Pharisees. And it's the Pharisees who develop their own system of dialectical system. It's they're the ones who are the idealists who actually have this idea that they're going to dress like the Roman citizens. They're going to have parties with the Romans. They're doing all this. And what you see by actually investigating who the Pharisees were, that they were the progressives. They were the non-traditionalists. And then what we have a want to do in society now, after following Luther and the Protestants and things, we have a tendency to see Christ as being a reformer, that Judaism was wrong. They needed somebody to come along and rebuild Judaism and remold it for the next, you know, for forever. But what you're going to find is that's not that story isn't exactly true. What Christ literally was doing, if you check it out, was he was the traditionalist. And all of his things, even the idea of communion and things were going back to much earlier and older Jewish customs. That he, yes, he was renovating them a bit, but he was trying to recover older and older things. Uh, and if you read, it doesn't take much to understand this, that if you, you know, if you go to church and you hear a lot of the readings, if you, once you get on the other side of this, you'll, you'll hear these readings as something completely different that what Christ is, he's, he's, he's criticizing the Pharisees for constantly defying Moses' law, for taking Moses and taking the authority of Moses and trashing it. And so what happens is Christ, and I, this is where I end up with a lot of this stuff, is if you actually understand the crucifixion and you understand how the interplay actually works through from both sides, you'll understand that these are constantly fights between faith and reason, which supersedes which. What happens at the time after the crucifixion, you end up with the destruction of Jerusalem. The Pharisees basically win at that point, and the Christians have to flee. That, in a sense, becomes the progress, that what, and what that is based on, what the Pharisees are based on is not scripture. They're based on this Talmud that was... Um, their records as uh, Babylonian Jews. In fact, it's even called the Babylonian Talmud, and it's the basis of, of it's the it's the basis of the Kabbalah, it's the basis of mysticism and all this other stuff. You over time the Jews uh, and Ju Judaism and Christianity kind you know one has a they treat Christ as different entities, but modern day Jews for the most part aren't, aren't that different from modern day Christians in a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I could point out differences, but the idea of who the Pharisees were in the first century as really progressives gets missed entirely by society and by, by academia. Progressives in the modern sense, which is a buzzword or a, 
uh, remarketing of uh, the word communism? I I think I would put them right in that camp because they were taking they were basically taking traditional Judaism and trying to they were taking it they were taking it. This is the the suspicious point is they they were moving it from a sacramental thing to uh, a verbal thing where you had which uh, dispensed with a sacramental religion, which by the time they were already inventing that by the time the temple was destroyed. And so you have to wonder, once the temple wasn't needed anymore, who was it the Romans or was it the Jews that destroyed it? There's evidence both ways. So at that point, it's a fait accompli that uh, you can't practice traditional Judaism. With, you, you look at all the things they lost once the temple was destroyed. They lost the, the scriptures, the, the original scriptures. They, they lost the most important is all the records and documents as to who was the priestly line, who was, you know, all that kind of stuff. You, you, you lost the building, you lost the ability to do sacrifices. So now you've got to invent uh, different customs and things to replace those. That by definition is progressive. Yep. That's a good point. Well, you know, or they could have just uh, ended it and, well, what Followed. happened though? What happened though is that's where you get the formulation of the Christian Church. Is the Christian Church is the continuation of traditional Judaism, and that what they do is then you take this the, the old. The and old that's customs. that's just what I was about to say as well. Right, and so what you do is you take the old customs and you modify them to the best you can. Every church becomes a temple instead of having one temple. Every clergy person represents the, the Levitical line. Uh, you do your best to, to continue it in the best ways you can, and then you incorporate the rest of the world as, op as being open to that religion. So at that, it, we tend to take that thing and see that as progressive, but that was, that was done out of necessity. It wasn't like the early Christians or the Jews at that time were purposely trying to do it. It was a response to the, really what I, go back to first century, and I, I dare anybody to look back and say, this is what you know, everybody you say Jesus wouldn't have worn a mask. You say Jesus uh, wouldn't have um, a lot of these different things that were you hear it all the time. But you look at the first century, the pandemic at the time was leprosy. And what did they do with the lepers? They, they quarantined them, but they didn't quarantine society. There's no evidence of Christ wearing masks and running around. And they, they weren't stupid people. They still treated the lepers with compassion. In fact, Christ made sure that you know like the samaritans a lot of the, the, the they were frowned on by a lot of the populace but he ensured that they were treated like people but to say that christ would have been a progressive and would have wore a mask and would have locked down society and would have done all these other things that they're doing there's no evidence of that and i would dare say you you had just like kenosha just like portland oregon you had bit you had rome burning you had Jerusalem burning. Uh, you had a very similar situation going on. So what, in your opinion, to summarize, have the millennials missed? Or what don't they understand? I think what they don't understand is they, they see Marxism from their schooling as being this utopian thing. And they don't realize that is inversion of everything we take, it's sacred. It's an inversion. Well, of 
And I think a few years ago I did a show just on inversion, but that's even a concept that's hard for people to get their mind around. You and I take it for granted. Yeah. But, you know, it's literally taking, you know, so, you know, what the left, what the Satanists really do is they go through the Bible and wherever it says not to do something, they invert it and they do it. Yeah. Uh, that goes for Aleister Crowley, for Aldous Huxley, for... You know, and the Fabian Socialists that Huxley was a part of, uh, all of these people, you know, they they want to break society as a whole. They have some strange hatred for the laws and rules that maintain our high-functioning society, and they want to break that. So they go through and they promote everything it says not to do. Well, you shouldn't have... You know, there shouldn't you shouldn't have open homosexuality. Well, let's promote that. We're gonna put it in every TV show for the last seven or eight years. We're gonna put it on magazine covers. We're gonna promote it heavily, 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 heavily. And the Jaffa memo for for nineteen sixty nine clearly shows that for eugenics, uh, they're going to uh, promote that. So let me just pull this Jaffa memo up. And people can see that there, and in this uh, here, I'll just pull it over from this one. People can see on this uh, uh, left column, it says encourage increased homosexuality. This is memorandum to Bernard Burleson, President, Population Council, found in archives relevant to the study of population policy for the U.S. March 11, 1969, by Frederick. S. Jaffe, Vice President of Planned Parenthood. So, you know, once we start realizing that all of these behaviors that they are promoting as freedom and whatnot are eugenics, are, you know, in World War One and World War Two, people would travel Europe that were a part of this socialist agenda and communist agenda, and they would see the carnage caused by people like Hitler and Tolstoy and Stalin and and uh who is the other one now Lenin and uh and Mao ad infinitum pretty much but they would see the carnage and the massive death toll that these people caused and then they came up with the idea of self eugenics right how do you get someone to take to take out their own family tree? You're going to promote homosexuality. You're going to promote uh, free love and partying. You're going to promote uh, extended adolescence or arrested development, so that you know, rather than settling down and having a family in your twenties, you're We're all under the guise of population control. Right. You're gonna you're gonna extend that out to the forties. You're gonna tell women, well, you shouldn't be in the home having families that's the man suppressing you feminism and gloria steinem what you need to do is chase a career so that by the time you figure out that you want a family you're probably too old to have one uh oh someone corrected me trotsky not tolstoy thank you for that and so uh you know all of this stuff plays out but this these all of these things are the left's agendas that they promote they are eugenics and degeneracy to break society and to, you know, to literally bring about the new, let's call it what it is, the fall. 
Right. And what you asked me at the beginning, could I bring it back around to the paper? What I tried to show in the Tiny Tim paper was that I personally regard the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence as near sacred sacred documents. Correct. Right. And what makes them sacred, near sacred, is, I think, basically centered on one line uh, that we consider inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That those aren't rights that I can't grant, nor can I take them away. They're given to you by the at the fact that you're a human, that you, you have a soul, and they're granted by God, if you want to put it that way, which way I would put it. But what happens when Woodrow Wilson becomes president, who's considered the quintessential, even though he was, they now disavow him because they consider him a racist, but he literally was the first progressive president. And he literally says in his writings that we're now going to invert those principles, that no longer are these rights that are granted, it's grant, these are rights that are expanded and given to you by the state. That, and so you talk about inversion of rules and inversion of principles. If that, if, if life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, whatever inalienable rights are, inalienable or unalienable, whichever one you want to use, they're rights that I can't confer or take away. They're not something I have any authority over. Correct. What progressives are doing is claiming authority over those things. Well, and, and what do they do? They want to get rid of the right to private property because what comes right behind that then you can't even state that this is my body and that's right. exactly what they want to do the left wants to promote vaccines and you know the you know the nazis the communists were you know took massive amounts of life because you disagreed with the state's narrative you know so that's part of the agenda behind it so what I to bring this to a close, what I would say what millennials don't get is this inversion principle of rules that the, the essence of whether you believe in Satanism, you're functionally a Satanist if you take truths that are inalienable and invert them and make them upside down and, and read them backwards, pervert, they're upside down. You're a Mark Passio. <laughs> right. Well said. So uh, anyway, thanks everyone for participating. Hit that like and subscribe button. Hit the bell so you get notifications. Next week, I believe Constance Comby is back. So uh, we should have something good to talk about there. She's going to be talking about uh, QAnon or Canon or however you want to pronounce that. The Q group and everything about that. We're going to have a good time. She's a cool old lady to have on. Steve, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, have to have you back again sometime soon. Let me know when you have more research you'd like to discuss. Will do. And uh, thanks, everybody. Please uh, hit the super chat or go to logosmedia.com and uh, donate or support the show, get a membership over there, etc. Can't do it without you. Down in the uh, links, there's uh, links to Patreon, etc for supporting the show. Greatly appreciate your support. Take care, everyone, and good night.